Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can find all of the links and resources from this episode, as well as every other episode, by going to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Spell it all out, or you can go to fourhourworkweek.com and just click on podcast. Feedback, if you have feedback, I would love your thoughts, anything at all, who you'd like to see on this show. Ping me on Twitter, at tferris, that's twitter.com forward slash T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Ferriss again. The Tim Ferriss Show, for those of you who are new to the show, this is where I try to dissect excellence, whether that is a billionaire investor, a chess prodigy, an entrepreneur, or otherwise. How do they do what they do? What are the tools and tricks and tactics that they use that you can use as well? And in this episode, I try to dissect the mind of Nick Ganju, who, uh, who I've known for a very, very long time, since graduating from college, basically. He is the CTO of ZocDoc uh, and has raised more than 
$95 million in venture capital as of uh, June 2003 or so, and they have more than 6 million users per month. And although Nick would hate for me to describe it this way, imagine Open Table for doctors. Uh, although it fixes much more than that, many other broken aspects of quality healthcare. And in this episode, we geek out on math, which I am phobic of. I've had a lifetime fear of mathematics. So we geek out on how to tackle numeracy if you're not comfortable with math, poker, ping pong, how to write a hit song, and the philosophical implications of of Monsters, Inc., uh, one of my favorite movies, certainly, among many other things. It is not too dense. That's the whole idea, to try to demystify and disarm things that are intimidating. And Nick has just an incredible capacity for simplifying what is what appears to be the very, very difficult. So I had a blast with this. I hope you do as well. So please meet Nick Ganju. Hello, everybody. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode and edition of The Tim Ferriss Show. Today is a rare treat because I have an old friend of mine who's got all sorts of dirt on me and knows all the skeletons in the closet, <laughs> Nick Ganju. Nick, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And you're in New York City at the moment? Yeah, that's right. I'm in uh, Manhattan. So the, uh, the, the beginning, I suppose, goes back some ways. We initially met... It must have been in 2000. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you were uh, looking for an apartment, and uh, and uh, I, I had an extra bedroom that I was renting out. And I, if I remember correctly, I didn't make the cut. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was at the height of the dot com boom at uh, at at a point where I suppose it was right at the top of the roller coaster in a lot of ways. And housing was just next to impossible, not unlike what it's like right now. And I guess it must, it must have been Craigslist, uh, casual encounters or I'm kidding, <laughs> the, uh, the, the rental section. <clears throat> and we met up and didn't end up becoming roommates, but ended up becoming friends and playing a lot of pool. And it was, it was amusing to me to, to read your official bio for the first time yesterday to try to get some additional yeah. context. So you ended up being the Bay Area billiards champion. Is this right? Yeah, yeah. It was like a uh, one of those uh, leagues that you you join, and uh, ended up being the champion that year. I played a lot of pool in college, and then since we were both just out of college, I uh, I had uh, you know still retained all that skill. If you played me right now, I'd probably be really good. <laughs> and the we're going to dig into some of the other uh, very varied, eclectic sort of dosekis. Uh, skills that you got that you <laughs> yeah. seem to have like table tennis and sort of deconstruct why that is um, also get into the music but for for those people who aren't familiar with you um, and uh, we, we can certainly get into the professional stuff but where did you where did you grow up what uh, what what did your parents do maybe you can give us some background sure sure uh, I, I grew up in Chicago uh, in the west suburbs of Chicago uh, my parents were both doctors so uh, you know Nice, nice, comfortable sort of upbringing. I was very fortunate in that way. Uh, went to undergrad, majored in computer science, uh, finished in 1998, uh, worked in Austin, Texas at a company called Trilogy for a year, but then decided that the, you know, that the dot-com boom of the time was just way too hot for me to be uh, working uh, at a larger company. So, you know, like all the, all the gold uh, hunters of, of history, I moved out west to California <laughs> Uh, 
you know, for, for the gold rush of 1999, I guess you could call it. Um, and, uh, you know, and tried my luck at a couple startups there. And, uh, you, you ended up then, I suppose, bringing us to the, to the current day co-founding ZocDoc. Uh, and, uh, the, what, what is the current state of, of ZocDoc? How many employees do you have? Maybe you can give us some stats. Yeah, sure. Uh, we are currently, uh, about 500 to 600 employees, um, and, uh, over 6 million people visit ZocDoc each month to search for, uh, a doctor. And, uh, you know, to, to give a little background, ZocDoc is a site where, uh, you can come, you can search for a doctor and, uh, you can see reviews, you can see photos and you can book an appointment right online. So, uh, in the way that you can book everything else online these days, we're trying to bring, uh, doctor appointment booking, uh, online. Now, for those people who haven't used the site, would it be fair to just as an imperfect analogy, say that it's similar to, uh, it's a more refined open table plus a bunch of, uh, other extra benefits for doctors that it has that sort of ease of use or, or more. Yeah, certainly. Uh, certainly it has that open table aspect where you can book appointments online. Of course, it also has the Yelp aspect where you can see reviews and you can see photos. Uh, and you can also now uh, check in, which means you can fill out your medical history forms uh, online before you get to the doctor's office. So that medical form is now pre-filled. And, you know, as as you visit subsequent doctors, you don't have to refill a medical form. So, we're you know, we're, we're slowly uh, adding more and more features that make you know, that process as painless as possible. So the, one of the, one of the topics that I wanted to talk about comes to mind, uh, when I call to my memory, the first visit to the ZocDoc offices and we, uh, we've, we've spent a lot of time together. We've had plenty of wine yeah. together, played a lot of pool together. Uh, and I've always been fascinated by your, your ability to not just test assumptions, but also, cut through a lot of the fuzzy thinking to hard numbers and analytics and the displays that you had at ZocDoc, the, uh, the real time displays of numbers and metrics. I, I think were a great sort of external representation for me of your <laughs> mind. And, uh, many people probably do not know that one of the reasons I went to, I chose to go to Princeton undergrad, which by the way, those people, who are listening, who might be applying to colleges, I was told by my guidance counselor, I would not get into, uh, talk about (laughs) (laughs) encouragement. Uh, and, and, and I think this is actually going to be relevant to our conversation later. You have to look at incentives because, uh, you know, economics ultimately is the study of incentives and how people respond to them. And what guidance counselors, even at very good schools want to be able to say is, 90% 90% of my students got into their first choice. The easiest way to do that is to make sure that their first choices are mediocre. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, so the, the, but the, the, one of the draws for Princeton was it, it was one of the few schools in, in the, the top group I was considering that did not have a math requirement. And, uh, I had a horrible experience in 10th grade with a math teacher. Uh, and, and this might seem strange to folks, but a, uh, she was a, a female math teacher who I think had just been really put through the ringer to get to where she was. And she was really, really kind of belligerent towards a handful of boys in the class. And it turned me off to math completely from that point forward. In contrast, my brother, 
had the exact opposite experience in 10th grade, had a wonderful teacher, and he went on to major in math and get a, you know, pursue a PhD in statistics. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear sort of the origins of your interest in computer science and, uh, and, and also sort of your general thinking on these types of skills. I know that's broad, but, uh, a lot of people like myself feared that it's, it's something innate. It's completely innate. You either have it or you don't. Uh, so maybe you could sort of rewind the clock and and talk about your experience with getting comfortable with this type of thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in terms of the computer science, uh, you know, I started the way that many computer nerds start, which is uh, I started programming at an early age, uh, like nine or ten years old, uh, on my Apple IIc, uh, and just trying to make games. Right, like we had those we had those games. You know, we had the Atari twenty six hundred, and we had I had some simple games on my Apple. Uh, and, you know, I was like, I, I want to try to do this. So I, you know, I bought a book on basic programming and I uh, tried to make a, a couple games. I tried to reproduce uh, the, the game from war games that if you remember that. Oh, movie, sure. Of course. Yeah. With, with Matt Broderick. Uh, so I tried to make I tried to uh, reconstruct that game, which is, the game in, in that movie is, is called Global Thermonuclear War. And <laughs> so it's a very violent game. And I uh, I, uh, I tried to recreate it with my nine year old you know, brain trying to, uh, deconstruct where to like deploy nuclear missiles. And, uh, I actually, I was actually working on it at school in grade school. And my, my principal walked into the computer lab and, uh, I got in big trouble because I was, I was making a a game called global thermonuclear war in (laughs) in fourth grade. And so, um, but, uh, you know, but, but that, that was the, like the genesis of my, my interest. And then, uh, in, uh, in, in high school, we had these programmable calculators, uh, and I, and I started writing games on the calculator and, and giving it to all, all my friends, uh, you know, in, 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 in the way that misguided nerds are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at, at age 15, I thought, I thought I would get a lot of girls this way. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that writing, you know, uh, Tetris on your calculator does not actually win you the cheerleaders. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that you know, that was, that was, uh, my best strategy at that time. Uh, so, <laughs> suffice to say, I was, I was single for, for high school, um, you know, but then, you know, and so my guidance counselor kind of saw these kind of things too, and recommended to me, uh, that I, you know, that I go and, and major in computer engineering or computer science. Uh, and that was something that was not even really apparent to me that, that that was a whole major and stuff. And of course this is in the nineties and you couldn't just Google things. Uh, and so it was just information. It, it was almost like, uh, you know, a revelation to me that you could just go and, and do this as a, as a profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and there's like f- actually a formal training, like you can actually go to a four year college and get, and get a computer science degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was great. Uh, and so I, you know, I went to university of Illinois, uh, which is, which is like sort of a top five computer science school. It kind of, kind of flirts in and out of there. Uh, some years it's number four and some years it's number seven or whatever. That's top two. That's, um, uh, also, didn't Mark Andreessen develop Mosaic there? Or yeah, yeah, there? yeah. Andreessen is from there. Max Levchin from PayPal is from there. Uh, you know, so a bunch of sort of illustrious current, uh, you know, Silicon Valley moguls are from there. So, uh, yeah, it's a good school. Um, and I, you know, I certainly really, really fell in love with computer science when I, when I did those four years. And kind of knew that I, that's what I wanted to do as a profession. What what made you fall in love with it there? Uh, and what do you think makes it a good? What what makes it a top five 
program aside from maybe the selection bias and having really good applicants <laughs> over time yeah. start to select it. Yeah, yeah, and certainly that's you know certainly every school has that sort of self fulfilling prophecy when you start to get that you gain traction and all the best kids want to go to your school. Um, but I think that they uh, are very uh, vigilant about keeping the computer science curriculum current. Uh, and so you can see, and I had, I had a, you know, I had a couple friends that had gone to different schools, uh, at that time and also majored in computer science. And, you know, I was learning Java at the time, which was the hot new thing. This is like 19, uh, 1996 or something. And, 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 you know, there, we already had courses in, in Java and my friends were still learning stuff in C. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that the, the new schools are, or the best schools are, are very, uh, diligent about keeping, the the curriculum up to date, especially in in computer science, as we all know, the the industry and the technology has changed so quickly. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a world where that's changing so quickly, I think this is part of what's so intimidating to a lot of folks, whether they're just trying to get by and want to be employable, uh, or they are uh, hoping to invest in technology companies, which is a very dangerous game to play, I think, for a lot of reasons, but. Uh, the, how, how much past a certain point, uh, because I, I recognize, for instance, it's easy for me to look at learning natural languages, mm-hmm. which I assumed I was bad at learning up until 15 or 16. And I can destroy a lot of myths and old wives tales about that. So when someone says to me, Oh my God, I'm too old to learn a language. It would take me a, my entire lifetime. It takes decades to become fluent, blah, blah, blah. I can, I can very easily dismantle those and get people excited about learning a language, even if they're, you know, 30, 40, whatever it might be with computer science and math. Uh, I have a lot of insecurities and I can do very basic stuff, uh, but never to calculus, you know, got up to pre-cal and, uh, how, how is, how coachable are these things and, and, how valuable is it to try to become more comfortable with sort of the quantified side of life um, at, at, a late, at a later point, right? I just turned 37. It's, it's one of these things that dogs me as an insecurity, much in yeah. the way that not being able to swim dogged me for until I was 30. Yeah. Uh, but maybe you, could, maybe you could comment on that. Sure, sure. Uh, I think, you know, there's certain fields of math that are uh, extremely important and just become more and more relevant. Uh, every day and you see like this kind of you know like the big data sort of uh, I hate to use buzzwords but that you know that sort of trend that that is uh, you know has come into favor in the last few years um, which is a very real thing uh, despite the buzzwords uh, you know there's a lot of sort of information to be gleaned and uh, improvements in our society to be had from from you know from statistical analysis so you know statistics and probability and statistics are, are things that are just going to become bigger and bigger parts of our of our world, uh, you know. In terms of calculus, I don't think I think if anything, calculus is sort of diminishing because uh, that that sort of that sort of field of math was more applicable when you when you didn't have a giant computer on every desktop, mm-hmm. you know, giant in terms of you know processing power mm-hmm. uh, to to crunch uh, the crap out of out of numbers and a lot of things that were. Uh, I'm trying to make it like layman's a lot of things that were closed form solutions, which means, uh, you know, they got solved through these sort of complex equations, uh, that you see with, you know, lots of weird symbols in them. Uh, now computers can just sort of brute force crank out the answers to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, 
and in a better way too, because it's sort of uh, you you can more closely mirror reality uh, with a computer mm-hmm. than you can with a closed form solution like a calculus equation. Mm-hmm. And so um, and so I don't think you know it, it's it's not a big deal if most people don't know calculus, but there's 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 fields of math which are certainly helpful in understanding. What would uh, what would those areas be? And I suppose just to jump right into it, you know, if you were and this this conversation is inspired for those people listening, partially because we sat down at the Zocdoc offices to talk about uh, encryption, and uh, I remember I was I would be I'd become really fascinated by encryption and uh, ciphers and code breaking because of a, a science fiction I suppose you could call it a science fiction book uh, called uh, Cryptonomicon, and yeah. uh, so we started talking about encryption and you know, you got up and and walked me through the basic principles of encryption uh, and feel free to correct me or, or provide some details if I'm missing them but as it applies in a lot of computer science then we went out to dinner that night and sat down with a bunch of uh, really impressive CTOs and uh, guys who've been VPs of engineering and we talked about encryption and it just blew my mind that something that I felt so utterly out of my depth with uh, a few hours earlier, I was able to actually c- cogently listen to discourse about in a few hours. Um, and that really encouraged me, but it's been hard for me to determine how do, how do I walk out? And I, I mean, I know you're a good friend of mine, but you're yeah. also busy. So it's like, I don't want you to be my, uh, my pro bono, you know, <laughs> you know, you know like mental model mentor. Uh, yeah. So how, how should somebody develop? How should somebody in in a fun or interesting way develop some of these skills, right? Because uh, you look at I remember this, and this is such a simple thing, but it kind of blew my mind when uh, the probabilities. All right, if we look at probabilities, humans are so bad, sort of intrinsically, it seems, at working with probabilities. And yeah. uh, if you have, let's say, a, a birth, if you have a big party and people bump into each other and they have the same birthday party, you know, our birthday date, they're sort of astonished, right? They're like, Oh my God, what are the chances? It's like one in a million. And I'm yes. just, and I'm just looking at this, uh, description here on Wikipedia of the, the birthday problem or the birthday paradox. Sure. And, you know, the probability obviously reaches a hundred when the number of people reaches 367 because there are, you know, whatever we, right. we extrapolate from 365 days a year, but you get to 50% probability with just 23 people. And it's yeah. just, it's so hard for people to grasp that. So, well, to be, uh, to be, well, let, let me refine it a little bit to be, to, to just state it really precisely. It's not that, uh, one of those people, one of those 23 people, uh, could go and ask the other 22 and odds are would find the same birthday, right? It's that any mm-hmm. two of those 23 people have the same birthday. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. It's a little, it's a little bit different, but it actually, uh, I think that's where the 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 misconception comes in is that you know you can kind of take from it like wow if I walked around and asked 22 people like there's a 50% chance that uh that I'd have the same birthday as one of them which is not the right mm-hmm. not the right way to think about it right and the devil's in the details right with those subtleties yeah. I mean massive miscalculations even by very smart experienced people Right. You look at uh, something like long-term capital management, right? They build this massively sophisticated system that doesn't take into account that somebody else could have a similar <laughs> machine that would then sort of trigger, trigger this, uh, crazy back and forth, uh, that would end in catastrophe, right? So, yeah. um, if somebody, 
feels as I do, right? That they, they want to be more comfortable with this type of thing, but they're not. Are there any particular approaches or books or anything like that that you would recommend? Yeah, I think, I think that, uh, people get intimidated because they, you know, they sort of look, look online and Wikipedia especially does this. You go and you're like, what is expected value or something? And you look at it and Wikipedia immediately like gives you these Greek symbols yeah. uh, on the first. And everyone's seen that, right? Like the first paragraph. Of it's in the, the first line of the birthday yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, and that, that, that serves the, you know, that even intimidates me. And I, I you know, I think I know a fair bit about math. Um, but like, it, it, you know, the, the best way to do it is to just start really simple and then work your way up slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you want to talk about probability, like, you know, let's play a game you and me right let's play a game where uh we roll a die a six-sided die right mm-hmm. and um and if uh if the number becomes six if the number is six i pay you a dollar mm-hmm. and the number is one through five mm-hmm. you pay me a dollar mm-hmm. right uh now would you play that game no i would not play that game right so you wouldn't play that game and so it you know it, it's it's intuition right now mm-hmm. now let's let, let's change the game and say that uh if if uh, if a six comes up, I pay you a thousand dollars, and if one through five each come up, uh, you have to pay me one dollar. Yes, I'll play that game. Right, so you, you play that game, right? Mm-hmm. So now the question is, at, at which point, at what point should you play or play it not or not play it? Right? Would right. you play it at three dollars? Like That's if, very Shakespearean. <laughs> no, play yeah. it not. Yes, <laughs> yeah, to play or not to play. Um, you, you know, if 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 a six was three dollars, if I paid you three dollars when a six showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, would you play that game? Right. Uh, probably not. I'm, yeah, I, I, I have to start doing calculations here. <laughs> sure, but that's that's the genesis of it, right? The genesis of it is right. The genesis of all math, really, is is you know, starting from these common sense or these real world problems, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, well, you know, how do I understand this problem? Uh, you know, my intuition says I I I wouldn't play it uh, if I only won a dollar when I hit six. And I would play it if I won a thousand dollars when I played six. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would it, would I do it at ten dollars? Would I do it at three dollars? Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, the so so you know start start from there, and you know, we can walk through this problem, right? Let's say let's a simple way to think about this problem is let's assume in six rolls mm-hmm. you get one of each, right? Mm-hmm. Like let's say we roll it six times and you get one 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 two one three one four one five and one six, mm-hmm. right? So you know for the three dollars. It's it's right. You you would lose five dollars for each of one through five, mm-hmm. right? And then you would win three dollars when you rolled a six, mm-hmm. right? So you would make three dollars and you would lose five dollars. So you'd be at negative two. Negative two dollars. Yep. Right. And so uh, you know, so you can start to see at which point you you would break even, which is five. I'll I'll, I'll cheat and give you the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at at five dollars you would break even exactly, right? If I paid you five dollars every time a six showed up, right? Then you would lose five dollars for each of the other rolls, and then <laughs> and then you would win five dollars when you got the six. I'm tracking and you. So, I'm tracking you so far. I'm not as dumb as I look. Actually, sure, I'm sure. a bit dumber than I look, but that's a sure. different story. <laughs> <laughs> and so, right? But but then that's the genesis of it, right? So now now let's roll two die, yeah, right? And like, what are the odds of getting, uh, you know, two sixes, uh? Right, so the odds mm-hmm. are that you know each one has a one in six chance of getting a six. Each die has a one in six chance of getting a six, mm-hmm. and you multiply those together, and the odds of getting two sixes are one in thirty-six. One in thirty-six. Yep. Yeah. And so now, right? So now you now you can do the game again, right? Would I pay you? How much should I pay you if you get a thirty-six? Uh, how much should I pay you if you get two sixes? I should say, and 
and, and it just goes from there, right? Mm-hmm. It just gets more and more complex. So, uh, right, and then you're like blackjack. Then is 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 just more of the same thing, yep. right? It's just a more complex version of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if you start simple and understand the the conceptual underpinnings, uh, you know, and, and then just work your way up from there. I think that sort of every field of math can just be. Uh, can just be broken down that way if you just start simple and not not get intimidated by all these Greek symbols. Now, the the uh, one of the things that sparked uh, my interest in exploring some of this was uh, my experience in television when I was doing filming the Tim Ferriss experiment, which uh, the the future of which is TBD for those people listening and wondering. It's the entire division at Turner that produced it was fired, basically shut down and it's sitting on a shelf. So I am, I've been battling to try to rescue that for months. Uh, suffice to say, keep an eye out. I may need some public support to get that done. But the, the episodes included at one point going to Vegas and being trained by a really fascinating guy named Phil Gordon, who has a CS background, who's taken home millions of dollars in uh, in winnings as a professional poker player, and he had a week to train me to go uh, heads up, you know, one on one against uh, professional poker players. And so you can imagine that week was a lot of this type of conversation. Sure, sure. <laughs> and he would ask me these very very basic probability questions, and I would just have this like <laughs> like stoned Labrador Retriever response with no words coming out of my face, and he'd just be like, "You're kidding me, right?" But worked <laughs> up to the point where he was able to give me matrices for deciding in a very binary way, like do you do you fold or do you raise, right? And then it started. It, it, I started memorizing these sets of rules. And it made it fun, right? It gave it a context so that I wasn't grappling with uh, some of these questions in a vacuum. Um, the the what what are and I know one of the books you recommended to me was uh, How to Measure Anything, and um, so, some of it I found very interesting. And of course, when we were uh, not too long ago, sort of sitting in uh, hanging out at the pool and and brainstorming stuff like this and talking about investing, you know. Yeah. You, you were able to to throw an extra element into the conversation, which was, well, you know, if if you have a thirty percent probability of doing X or seventy percent probability of doing Y, yeah, if the person giving you that information only tells the truth, you know, sixty percent of the time, <laughs> then yeah. then what, right? Like, how right. does that affect the outcomes? Right. Um, are there any other books or even just uh, games uh, or um, or Methods for making this a fun process for people, right? Because the, the, the idea that I could spend a week learning poker and, uh, be able to play with, without getting my total face ripped off. Yeah. Um, so, you know, probably 70% of the recreational players out there pretty yeah. easily is yeah. huge ROI, right? That's, that's massive. Um, yeah, that's great. What else, uh, what else comes to mind? What other books would you recommend to people or resources? Uh, yeah, I, I love poker as well. Uh, I think poker is a great uh, example of of math, of a combination of math and like sort of uh, emotional intelligence also coming into play. Um, but it, it, you know, poker is a great sort of reflection of of all the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, of course, the you know the the books I, I've recently read a great book, uh, which is called How Not to Be Wrong: mm-hmm. uh, The Power of Mathematical Thinking, mm-hmm. and this book uh, by a, a guy named Jordan Ellenberg um, is is a 
is it is exactly what we're talking about. It, it's like it, it's written for an audience of people that have you know historically been intimidated by math or just thought, gee, I'm not good at math, mm-hmm. uh, and introduces things in a very simple way and then works up to more complex uh, concepts in, in the way that we just broke down, you know, probability with this dice game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that's a great book, and I and I hope it it does well, and I hope it it uh, alleviates some of this sort of you know the that that uh, intimidation that people have. Mm-hmm. And and uh, does this? Uh, I I know that we also chatted at one point about uh, your classes. I, I there might be a better term for them, but internally at uh, at Zocdoc, trying to help you know, poor, poor liberal arts majors like me, um, become better at goal setting and things along those lines. So I, I know you're a fan of, uh, what is often referred to as smart goals. Would right. you, would you mind talking about how you set goals or how you suggest people set goals and common problems with, uh, or common mistakes that people make? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the easiest example is that people, uh, so, so smart goals means you know sp- specific, uh, uh, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely, and uh, and so right, it, it's sort of a framework to 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 help you pick goals that you, that are you can objectively hit or miss. So measurable means I'm going to you know I'm going to do I'm going to lose exactly ten pounds or you know at least ten pounds mm-hmm. in the next two months or three months, and uh, you know and then you can objectively decide at the end. Uh, whether or not you've lost 10 pounds, right? As opposed to saying, I'm just going to lose weight. And then right. you don't, you don't really know whether, you know, what kind of goal and you don't, it doesn't work psychologically, right? You're just like, Oh, I'm just sort of vaguely losing weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, putting that, writing down that goal and literally putting it on your wall actually gives you something to strive towards. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the, the next problem after that, so, so the first problem is just setting objective goals, right? Instead of just saying, let's try to accomplish X, right? Let's try to get X more, like, let's just try to get more people using ZocDoc, right? As opposed to let's get 10 million more people to use ZocDoc. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our different goals, just, just psychologically speaking. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then, and then at, at review time, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to see whether you did it or not. But then the, the next problem after that is that, uh, you know, people just say, uh, yeah, that sounds like a good number. Let's get a million more people to use it or whatever. Uh, and, but there's no basis in, in how they're going to get to that million. Right. And so, uh, you know, and, and the analogy I like to use is, uh, you know, when, when they tried to put the first man in space or the first man on the moon, uh, you know, they, they didn't just say like, okay, let's get in the rocket and, and like burn the rocket as hard as we can and maybe we'll get into space. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they, they did all the math behind it. Right. They were mm-hmm. like, gravity pulls us this much and we, you know, we have to take this much weight up. And so then we need this much fuel, uh, but this much fuel then adds this much weight also to the, to the rocket. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that causes its own set of problems and then there's wind resistance and everything. Right. And, and they did all the math to figure out how to get themselves into space. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in business and in life, people just say, uh, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna add this much, or I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna create this much more, uh, X percent more of, of whatever is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they haven't really done the underlying math, right? Let, let's yeah, get I, think, I think I'm guilty of that too, definitely, because you're you're constantly told as a uh, as a non quant comfortable person, like you got to think big, and so people are like, okay, great, like I'm going to build a billion dollar company, and then yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Sure, yeah, so that's a good example, right? Like if you if you want to build a billion dollar company, what do you what do you need to do? Like, uh, right, what kind of revenue do you need? 
to to justify or what kind of earnings do you need to justify being a billion dollars and then you know what sort of markets or what sort of opportunities are available to that would create that much earnings and then how are you going to get there right you can't just say like let's just build a billion dollar company mm-hmm. and so uh I mean, it's good to have that goal, but then you need a plan to, to execute as well. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the big uh, improvements that, that we've done operationally is is you know, what I call business cases. And it's what it's the math of how you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. And the example I use, uh, which is sort of just a fun example, was um, uh, was we use that Monsters Inc. So Monster is a recurring is a recurring kind of theme. Uh, at our at ZocDoc, so the, mm-hmm. like the the monsters from Monsters Inc. Uh, uh, I'm blanking on their names now, but uh, th- those characters from that movie. <laughs> no, I want to call one of them but... Elmo, but it's not the right name. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Waka- Mike Mike Wachowski or something. Man, I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking. Sounds good. Oh, enough. It's Sully. It's Sully and and Mike Wachowski or something. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, right. So you know, like like uh, you know. And any uh, team member that, that crushes it that week, we give them one of the stuffed animals and they're the monster of the week and stuff. So it's this sort of recurring theme. Um, but, you, you know, one of the one, my example that I used was uh, they have uh, right. They have these doors to, to children's bedrooms where they, they go and they like make them they either they used to scare them. But now they make them laugh or whatever. Um, James P. Generates- Sully Sullivan and Mike Wazowski. Mike Wazowski. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty close. <laughs> that was close. That was close. Yeah. So uh, you know, so so they, they go into these children's bedrooms and they make them laugh and and that generates electricity for the for the uh for the city that they live in, Monstropolis, which is the name of the city. Mm-hmm. And so right, like let's say, you know, one day they're like short on electricity. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing, right, like the first, like, so then the CEO of Monstropolis or CEO of Monsters Inc. is like, let's generate more electricity. Mm-hmm. And then a bad, you know, a bad way to do it would be like, let's just try to generate more, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a good way to do it would be like, let's generate one more, like one gigawatt more, mm-hmm. right? And then it's like, okay, uh, one gigawatt, great. How do we get there, right? Mm-hmm. And then, well, okay, so each door generates, you know, a megawatt, uh, you know, each door that you, you manufacture to a new, uh, child's bedroom like generates one megawatt mm-hmm. and so you need to generate a thousand more doors like you need to like manufacture a thousand more doors to to get to get this one gigawatt uh and then and then so then how do you make a thousand more doors well you need like a hundred door manufacturers that each make 10 and then you try to do that but then you realize there's like a 10 percent defect rate right and so it, it's 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 like sort of building up from there mm-hmm. uh and, and and understanding the math behind it, mm-hmm. and then understanding if that's realistic. Can I have you know a hundred door makers or whatever I whatever I just said? Um, you know, is is it realistic to hire that many that quickly in one month or whatever? Um, but really breaking down the plan to to you know and and multiplying these numbers through to to get to the goal is is really the difference there between success and failure. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's not complicated math, right? It's right. just it's just uh, you know I need a thousand doors, so I need I need. Uh, you know, a hundred door manufacturers that can each make 10 doors in a month and then I'll have a, a thousand doors. And so none of it's, you know, calculus or, or any of this other stuff, but it is, you know, rigorous in terms of, you know, you have to be able to, those, 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 indiv- when you break it down to the individual components, those things have to be executable, right? Can I actually get a hundred door makers and does each of them actually make 10 doors a month and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, how do you then translate that to say weekly check-ins or monthly check-ins? How do how do you, how do people who take who do this case study, mm-hmm. uh, who've set a quantifiable 
objectively measurable goal, uh, then ensure that they are on track or at least, uh, check in to see if they're on track or not. How frequently is that done? Um, and, and how do, how do people improve the odds of hitting those goals once they've set it down on paper and taken, say, a sort of get, they've, they, they have a, they've accepted and agreed that yes, we need to understand sort of the, 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 the different numbers that underpin this goal and the assumptions right. we're making. How right. do you, how do they then, how do you encourage them, uh, to keep on track? How, how often are they checking in or having someone else check in on them? How does that work? Uh, yeah, sure. So, so they're, the goals are set quarterly. So every three months they have, uh, you know, they set this goal. So, so for you know, going back to this Monsters Inc. example, that would be a, a three month goal would be the, uh, you know, we're going to generate one more, uh, one extra gigawatt of, of power. Uh, and then they have to right, and then each week they're going to follow the numbers that, that, you know, that were the breakdown of this plan. So they say, you know, how many, uh, how many door manufacturers did I actually hire this week, and mm-hmm. how many doors did they actually manufacture this week? Right, and then right, and then you start to get confidence around those numbers, right? You you, you start to see, oh crap, I can't I can't hire a hundred door makers in a month. It's actually going to take me two three months to hire a hundred, mm-hmm. but I can hire thirty in the first month, and they're each going to contribute ten doors. So I'll at least have three hundred doors in the first month or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And then and you learn something new. You learn that that uh, that oh ten percent of the doors are defective. So it's actually not 300 doors generated in the first month. It's 270 doors generated in the first month, mm-hmm. and so then you add a new line in your in your in your business case here uh, that you know is going to subtract 10 percent from your finished product of doors. Mm-hmm. And over time, over time, you 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 generate a really solid understanding of that game of that of whichever whichever initiative it is that you're planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you add lines and as you refine the numbers uh, for e- for each each line, and then so basically, you start to fill in the actuals, and you look at their deviation from your you know from your projections when you started. Yeah, from your base assumptions, uh, which is something that uh, you know I'm I'm constantly astonished. And I do this in a very Fred Flintstone sort of knuckle dragging kind of way. But I, yeah. if, if I look at just as a group, for instance, uh, investors, um, angel investors or people who are doing early stage investments, right. they form a thesis, they go out and raise a bunch of money and then they never modify. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of like the parody of uh, George W. Bush that Stephen Colbert did at one point where he, he gave an address at like the Republican National Convention or something. And he said, you know, I love, you know, I, it was this paraphrase, obviously, but he's like, I stand behind a president who no matter what happens on Wednesday he still holds the same belief on Thursday that he did yeah, on Tuesday yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah feel, he was yeah he was making fun of because because they branded they branded John Kerry as a flip-flopper yeah right, right. That, that's what it was right. and uh and it's like it's sort of the mark of intelligence to learn from your mistakes and and change your attitudes of things uh and so and so they were they were they were sort of uh Colbert was was uh ribbing yeah. Push for for uh you know for brand and carry as a flip flopper. Yeah, I'm not sure the uh yeah that that worked out exactly as they expected. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so when you were a kid, just to really not entirely shift gears because it's closely related. Um, actually, before I go there, do you yeah. have all of your employees trained on Excel? Is that is that what that means when they're inputting these values? So yeah. that things yeah, automatically the, update. Yeah, this is done in Excel. Each column is a month. Uh, 
And so you can see time progressing, you know, going to the right. And then each row will be one of these things. So like, you know, uh, again with this Monsters Inc., it's how many how many door manufacturers do I have? How many do they make in a month? What's the defect rate, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as a month like turns into reality, you you fill you you overwrite the the projected assumptions with the uh, with the with the actuals. But it, it, what, what I think in general, like what I'm saying, sounds really simple. Um, but, but people don't do it. People just don't do it. Yeah. You know, in general at, in, you know, lots of companies that I visited or, or like you said, like smaller startups that I, that I help out with, uh, in an advisory role, they just don't do these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about the number of projects that fail in business, um, and then the amount of, of research or, or forethought that goes into them, uh, you know, in general that that's way, way off. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, to go back to probability, if there's, even an, even even if you think there's a ninety percent chance of something succeeding mm-hmm. and a ten percent chance of failing, uh, well then it's worth it to spend ten percent of the time uh, ahead of time to mm-hmm. see if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is if you're starting a ten week project, you spend a week to research it, right? right? And and people don't do that, right? People no, not at all. spend people yeah. spend two hours thinking about it, and they go, "That'd be a great idea," and then they and they hop off and do it for ten weeks. Right. And yeah. just to put and, that in perspective, that means if it's a 10 year project it could t- that you could justify a year yeah. uh, in doing due diligence, which is, yeah. is totally entirely not the case, obviously, in, in the vast majority of instances. Um, yeah. And or budget. Right. If, if it's a if it's a hundred million dollar project, you should spend 10 million dollars just researching it. Mm-hmm. If you think there's a 10 percent chance it's going to fail mm-hmm. if right. And and. More than more than ten percent of projects actually fail, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think there's a twenty five percent chance that it that it fails, you should spend twenty five million dollars researching a uh, hundred million dollar project. This is assuming that you're going to take the the research project is going to take the odds of success to a hundred percent. But still, it's it's uh, you know and and in the perfect you know it's not a perfect world and nobody knows these exact numbers, but certainly the amount of forethought or research that's done in general is like way 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 under. You know what? Even a ballpark estimate would say that the amount of forethought should go into it. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, do you do you hire people who who uh, have pre existing Excel experience? I do not, for instance. I mean, I I, I can read an Excel document, but if yeah. I have to create macros and so on, I I couldn't create an Excel spreadsheet that functions to save my life. How <laughs> would you How would you train How do you train someone to do you do it all internally? Do you have a certain course you recommend? Anything no, like that? We do. Yeah, we, we do it all internally. And then again, like macros are, are just way, way ahead of, of anything we're doing. Right. J- yeah. Just getting a standard uh, Excel sheet working, just, you know, just let's call it 10 rows and, and 10 columns yep. is, is fine. And then and right, and you can build up from there as, as you learn more and you get more comfortable. But, you know, again, that, you know, this is going back to the attitude again, saying like, uh, I can't do macros and I can't do like V lookups and, and I can't do pivot tables. Uh, yeah, right? I can't do those either, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, but, but basic Excel is, is none of that. Basic Excel is I have, you know, it's just that it's, I have 10 door manufacturers or whatever, a hundred door manufacturers that are making 10 doors and you multiply those two cells together and you get a thousand. Yep. Um, and that's how you should start, right? You should start with just the one row. So like, let's start with just the one row of like, uh, I'm going to make a thousand doors. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like literally one cell that says a thousand. Mm-hmm. And then you say, okay, well, what's the math behind that? And so then you say, okay, well, I need a hundred manufacturers that are each going to make 10 doors. Mm-hmm. So you make two new cells and you say, you know, you put a hundred in one cell and 10 in the other cell. 
And then the third cell that used to just say a thousand mm-hmm. is now you, you change that to be the product of those other two cells, mm-hmm. right? So you say that that third cell equals the first cell times the second cell, right? And then, and so so now if you change the numbers in the you know in the number of door manufacturers you have, the the thousand will automatically shift, mm-hmm. right? And then and and then you say, okay, well, how many door? Why do I have this many door manufacturers? Why do I think I have a hundred door manufacturers? And it's like, oh, because uh, I'm gonna hire 50 this month and 50 next month, mm-hmm. and so right. So now that hundred, instead of just being a hundred, is is the sum of two other cells that each say 50, mm-hmm. right? And so you just you just work backwards from there. You you just take each cell and break it down into its subcomponents, mm-hmm. uh, and pretty soon you have a working Excel document. And it doesn't need to be more complex than that. And that's right. And that's a great start. And you'll do that for a while, and then you'll be comfortable with that. And then you'll be like, "What is it? What what is this pivot table nonsense that everyone's talking about? And is it actually useful?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you'll go into pivot tables, and right. But but nobody that you know, nobody in the history of Excel, no matter what kind of computer genius they were, like started day one and was like, "How do I make macros work? Or how do I make pivot tables work?" Right. right. They all started this way. It's just the Excel, and you know, it, 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 that's like the big sort of uh, secret of of mathematicians in general is that. You know, everybody started from one plus one equals two and built their way up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just the, you know, it's just it, each step is not a big step once you understand the previous step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a gentleman, I believe his name is Keith Devlin out of Stanford, who's uh, very good at, at at speaking to this topic. And I always find myself sort of nodding and agreeing with him after every essay I read or interview I hear. And then uh, <clears throat> once I, once I sort of look at the possibility of delving into numbers and I get cold sweats, which I need to get <laughs> over. Uh, let me, let me change gears just a little bit and sure. ask, uh, sort of fill in the picture of, of who Nick Ganju is. And I, and, uh, the, the first is, do, do you have a, a favorite book or a book that you've given most as a gift? Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends in, in which context. So you could, uh, give, you could give a couple. Sure, sure. Uh, so, in uh, it, it, for my software engineers, I love a book called "Don't Make Me Think," mm-hmm. which is a book about usability and making uh, making uh, software and user interfaces that that are friendly to people. And o- often, you see these software engineers where they kind of scoff, and everyone's you know encountered this guy. It's a, an IT guy or a software engineer that scoffs at the novice user, right? Mm-hmm. They say, ha, 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 this guy doesn't know how to use this thing. Like, this guy doesn't need, know how to use Photoshop. You know, he's so dumb. Or he doesn't know how to make his network. He doesn't know how to connect his, his computer to the network, and, and he's so dumb. Uh, and right, that, that attitude is something that needs to, to vanish. Uh, and if you look at successful companies like Apple where, you know, things just work, uh, you know, none of the engineers have that attitude, right? Mm-hmm. They, they have the attitude of, uh, you know, a, a bad software company has the attitude of uh, if somebody doesn't know how to use something, it's their fault because that user is dumb. Mm-hmm. And then if and a good software company has the attitude of if they don't know how to use something, it's our fault because we did not make the software intuitive enough, mm-hmm. right? And and we didn't make it simple enough for 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 people to use. Mm-hmm. And you know, you see, App, Apple is a shining example of that where they they really go out of their way and do extra work. You know, the engineers do immense amounts of extra work to make it easy and sim- simple for the user mm-hmm. and they're rewarded in the market and the, you know and so uh the book that i love which which helps reinforce that sort of culture you know that that user-friendly culture here at zocdoc is a book called don't make me think uh which is uh, a book on usability in it and it 
you know, it, it's sort of a simple book. It's like 100 to 150 pages, uh, lots of, you know, illustrations about like, you know, good user interfaces and bad, inter- bad user interfaces. And it's so it's kind of an easy read, uh, but it is a treatise on on why we should make usable interfaces um, and not not just how we should make them like, you know, what what sort of, you know, user interface sort of patterns work or don't work, but also why we should do that. Right. And right. And and this is the reason, right? Like, I mean, think about ZocDoc, right? If, if you go to the homepage, you know, people discovering us for the first time, they go to the homepage and if it's, if it's complicated, they're just going to leave. Right. Right. And, and if it's simple, they're going to stay and, and, and book an appointment. And so, you know, it's all very well and nice of us to scoff about, you know, ha ha ha, that user didn't know how to use our homepage. And we can be haughty and scoff about it, but then we just didn't get that appointment, right? It's our it's our job to get people to book appointments, mm-hmm. and so right there's no, there's no room for being haughty about that. Like we we need to make it accessible to to everybody. Yeah. As a side note, the best uh, just to choose something that that people are also often afraid of learning languages. The best language teacher, or one of the best language teachers I've ever encountered. Um, was of the, his name is Michelle Thomas, amazing guy. If you can get the original recordings of the classes that he did, they're just uh, amazing. And, and what he would say to the students right off the bat was, don't worry, don't be nervous, don't try hard, because if you, if you don't learn, it's my, it's my fault, not yours. It's the job of the teacher to make sure that you learn. So he sort of took the exact same approach with language learning and unburdened the student to make it the responsibility of the teacher to make it easy. Um, which is, I think partially why he was so spectacularly successful. So so it just goes to show. Um, and he could get people up to basic speaking in, in all the romance languages in about eight hours of class time. It's really amazing. Um, so what other, what other books outside of, outside of don't make me think do you, do you give most as a gift or, or recommend most? Uh, and then you know how to measure anything, which is what we talked about before, which is uh, which is about uh, you know being outcome based and being you know getting these measurable outcomes. Saying I'm going to lose ten pounds as opposed to just saying oh, I'm going to try to lose weight uh, is you know. And, and this this is a great book because uh, you know people often complain uh, that they can't measure something, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, how many how many people like our site like if people do people really like our website well how do you measure that well it's measurable right you can do a survey you can ask people you can you can just look at conversion rates how many people actually do something on your website as opposed to just look at it and run away and so this book is is you know i found is quite informative on to how to think about uh you know measuring things that you might have thought were intangible historically mm-hmm. uh and it also goes into these uh kind of ideas about uh, why it's valuable to measure something. So going back to what I was saying about, you know, if there's a 10% chance of something failing, well, then you should spend 10% of your time, like, uh, before doing it, you know, deciding if it's going to fail or not. And, um, uh, and so really getting that discipline about, about doing, you know, doing enough forethought and like sort of reflection up front, mm-hmm. uh, is another big sort of, you know, theme of this book. I thought the confidence interval aspect was really fascinating as well. Not something that I've thought enough about. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, if you're 90% confident that something is going to happen or that something is correct, what does that actually mean? You know, people throw that around. Like, how certain yeah. are you? I'm 75% certain. Like, how did, right. how should that be reflected in your actions and preparation and so on? Right. 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 Uh, yeah, I thought it was really, really fascinating. Um, do you have a, what is your favorite documentary or movie? 
or favorites. And these don't have to be highbrow. It could be legally blonde. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Uh, I really like Forrest Gump a lot. I don't know if that's like a common one or a cheesy one. Um, What do you like about it? Well, it's, you know, it's just like, you know, in the beginning, I mean, it's sort of uh, obvious symbolism, but in the beginning, there's like a feather floating around the end. There's a feather floating around and he's sort of, uh, you you know, he kind of floats around, right? Like he kind of, he kind of, I forgot the exact story, but like, I think he's like running. Oh, I know. He like, there's a football field and he kind of runs through it because he's running, he's fleeing from something and he runs faster than everybody. So then they kind of like, oh my God, we got to get that guy to play football. And then he plays football, and then he goes to college because he plays football. At the end of college, like some uh, 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 army recruiter just hands him a flyer just at random and says, like, you should join the army. And he's like, okay, I'll join the army. And so he's just kind of floating around on the wind there. And I think it's um, it's a good sort of uh, lesson where, you know, where you don't take yourself too seriously, right? Like, it's like you're, you're going to just – like, things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the more – you, you stress out about like life is not going exactly the way I planned mm-hmm. uh, the more unhappy you're going to make yourself, which is not to say you shouldn't try to do things, but uh, you know, you should certainly try to you know, shape your life and, and, and all this, but, but you know, don't, don't take it too seriously or don't, don't stress out too much when things don't go exactly how you planned. So how I would love to hear maybe a concrete example from your life, because from all outward, um, indications i mean you've done exceptionally well with zocdoc and and elsewhere how do you choose how much to plan versus uh sort of allow to 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 bend to serendipity right because you you do a bunch of other things that we haven't gotten into yet but uh, yeah. the the music you know you take very very seriously yeah. Um, we're, we're going to talk about ping pong now that you mentioned Force Gump, but like, well, let, let's use, <laughs> like, let's use ping pong as an example. Let's tell, sure. tell, <laughs> well, maybe you can explain <laughs> the, the ping pong, uh, the, the, the ping pong phenomenon, what, or the, your experience <laughs> of ping pong. And just sure, as, sure. As, um, you know, this goes back to what you're saying about, you know, uh, uh, older people wanting to learn something. Uh, you know, people, I play guitar and people say, well, I wish I had started guitar when I was a kid so I could play. And I said, well, I started when I was 28. And so, you know, uh, still young, but not, you know, I wasn't like a 10 year old and, and ping pong, uh, I learned when I was, when I was 36 and I'm 38 now. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I thought that would be, uh, it's another interesting thing. It's really, I think people limit themselves as to, they think they can learn, or it's almost like an excuse to not have to try to learn something, right? Right. Oh, I'm 36, like I can't learn ping pong now. I'm too old. And it's just, it kind of makes it easy to to say, it's it, it's easy to not try to double down and actually learn something because mm-hmm. you can just kind of cast it off and say, oh, I'm too old to learn new things. Right. Um, but the story of the ping pong was that we got, uh, uh, we purchased two or three ping pong tables for my office mm-hmm. uh, uh, two years ago, and uh, and I was the worst player. I had never played ping pong in my life. I'd played like five times in my whole life, mm-hmm. and and I was the worst player uh, out of everybody. And and everybody was laughing, and they were like, "Ha ha ha!" Because you know it's always fun to like to screw with the boss, right? So so, <laughs> so right. So the boss talks at ping pong. Ha ha! We're all beating the boss ping pong. And so I got, I got, you know, I, I got a little, I got motivated. Let's say I got motivated. Right? <laughs> That's a good adjective. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, you know, and I threw down the gauntlet and I said, uh, okay, I'm going to beat everybody here. I'm going to beat everybody at this company in 30 days. Um, 
And uh, everyone did, was did like, you, you can't did, just... Okay, so you proclaimed this. This was like... I, pro- I proclaimed it out loud. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I, and I photoshopped, like, the, the Highland... You know, the Highland... There's a Highlander... I don't know if you remember that movie, of The course, Highlander. there can be only one. Like, yeah. yeah, so, like, you know, there's a sword... He, like, there, he's like, there's a photo of him with the sword in the air and the lightning is striking the sword. And I replaced the sword with a ping-pong paddle. <laughs> and the lightning is striking the ping-pong paddle. And I wrote, there could be only one. And, uh, but, you know, but... Uh, I practiced and practiced, uh, and in in thirty days, uh, uh, I had beaten all but two people at the company. And then, and then, and you know, because this is like the long tail of, of right, like at the end of the bell curve, there's going to be people that are exceptionally good. But uh, and getting mathy again, I know. Right. But um, no, no, no. It's just like I mean, it's like uh, you know, Facebook and Peter Thiel's portfolio, right? There's just sort of like a power law. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Like the last two people are going to be monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but then in another 30 days, I beat those two people. And so in six, I said in 30 days, I'll beat everybody. But in 60 days, uh, I beat everybody, but two people in 30 days. And then 60 days, I beat everybody. Um, how, how did you, how did you go about learning it? Like when you sat down, you're like, okay, now I run the risk of, of humiliating myself if I don't make this happen. Yeah. What was your, when you sat down to like plan it out, how did you do it? Yeah. So first of all, I don't think like th- that's an interesting sort of way to put it. it. It never occurred to me to say like, oh, I'm humiliating myself if I didn't do this. And maybe that's like a sort of uh, mentality that's, uh, you know, maybe that's like illustrative of the mentality. Right. I wasn't uh, it, 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 it until you said that now, like two years later, it never crossed my mind that uh, like the humiliation of defeat or how humiliating that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, maybe, you know, it's just it, it's more constructive to just think about like to focus on the, the positive of when you're going to win and not, and not like, and not fret about the downside. So when you were, when you were fantasizing about (laughs) gloating over the other, the employees in company, yes. How did you, how did you sit down to, to, to plan it out or what, okay. So what was was the method? Cause I actually want to get good at ping pong. So I'm sure, sure, sure. So the, the first thing was, and by far the most important thing was, uh, I went to the ping pong, uh, uh, like, like, uh, uh, parlor by my house mm-hmm. and took lessons. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, right. And that was, and then when I, at the end, when, when, uh, so I, I, ta- I, I was taking lessons once a week from there mm-hmm. and I, you know, and that of course just, just catapulted me in, in my skill level. Um, but, uh, and what would happen was at the third or fourth week, uh, uh, one of my uh, coworkers came into that ping pong parlor and saw me and saw me <laughs> taking lessons and, and spilled to the entire, uh, uh, company that I had been taking lessons and which I thought was another interesting sort of, uh, you know, reflection on life, which is, you know, people are like, Oh, you didn't say you were going to do that thing. Right. And I was like, I didn't say what I was going to do or what I wasn't going to do. It's just, it's Other just, than I, beat I thought, all your asses. Yeah, I said I was going to beat everybody. <laughs> and, you know, when, when we started ZocDoc, people said the same thing, right? People said, oh, you'll never get, like, you know, there's, there's practice management software that exists out there. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, you'll never be able to integrate to these third party uh, practice management systems because they're too antiquated and, uh, right, they, they're not going to release a new version. And some of, some of the companies are, you know, they're not even developing those things anymore. And we went and, you know, we just went and reverse engineered some of the existing ones uh, just by literally, like, getting copies of the software and and uh, deconstructing the file structure and, and really re- reverse engineering it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got it working. And all of a sudden, you know, 
uh, Zocdoc started working. The, the you know the all these all these uh, antiquated softwares were effectively communicating with us. And then those naysayers are like, oh, you didn't say you were going to do that, right? Like, we thought you had to strike up partnerships with all these, like, software companies. You didn't say you were just going to get the software and reverse engineer it. And it's like, well, I didn't say I was or I wasn't. But it's, like, you know, if you're thinking so inside the box and then when somebody thinks outside the box and gets something done, you, did, you, you know, you, you should learn from it. You should be like, oh, that's slick. You shouldn't right. be like, oh, I, I, you didn't say you were going to do that. That's not fair, yeah. right? It's not, and, you know, that's another sort of, illustration of like i'd say you know positive attitudes versus negative attitudes well, but you know but so, so i took these lessons so i took these ping pong lessons mm-hmm. and then they go oh you didn't say you're gonna do that and you know then they started saying oh only you can afford lessons the guy the guy that came and, and found me in the ping pong place was like uh he he ran into me at the bar of there's a there's a bar in this ping pong parlor and he said yeah not everyone can afford the lessons and i was like he's like I was like, how much did you spend on these drinks? And he had bought a round of drinks for four or five of his friends. And he was like, this is $40. And I was like, the, the ping pong lesson I just took is $35. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm not drinking. <laughs> I, and I haven't bought any drinks. So I'm going to come out of this ping pong you know, place spending less than you have. Uh, but, you know, so you know, the first thing I did was that and, uh, and started with proper forum. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then practiced a lot. When uh, when people weren't around, mm-hmm. um, how did you practice when people weren't around? So there's a couple. And, one, and, one, and what are I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cheat here, I guess. Uh, what are some of the most common mistakes that people make playing ping pong? Just like the randos who like have a couple of beers and grab a ping pong table. Like what are, when you watch <laughs> it? What what makes you cringe? What are you like? Ah, oh, if they only knew the basics, they should do this, and not do that. Yeah, yeah. Number one is is the is the grip. So a lot of people just hold it atrociously, mm-hmm. just hold the ping pong paddle in you know whatever way they first they're first inclined to do it, um, and you know the general way there's there's a couple of, like schools of hold of holding it, but the general way you're supposed to do it is uh, it's called the handshake, and so you sort of extend your hand like you're having a handshake, you know you're about to shake somebody's mm-hmm. hand, and then you you put the the handle in that way. Sort of hard to explain. In I, th- I think I get it. So, so your 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 four fingers, not your thumb, then are extended kind of diagonally across the back, the flat portion, as opposed to the handle of of one of the paddles. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to cover uh, a large portion of the paddle with your hand because then your backhand will just you'll hit, it'll hit your fingers. Right. Um, but yeah, that's essentially the right idea. Okay, people can uh, Google it though. The handshake. Yeah, yeah, handshake method, and then and the handshake grip, and then the uh, the other thing is people just don't. Uh, have any conception of of how big a, a bigger how big a role spin is in the game, hmm. and so it's a it's a very light ball, and and spin has immense effect on the ball, mm-hmm. and so you know your normal like looping forehand is supposed to have a lot of top spin on it, mm. and so it, every ball should have spin on it, and you know depending on what you're trying to do, if you're trying to slice it, if you're trying to side spin, if you're trying to top spin, um, if you're just hitting it flat, then you're sort of uh, forsaking an opportunity to do something, you know, mm-hmm. tricky with it that that would that would screw up your opponent. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, lear- learning how to hit the ball with spin is is I'd say the second biggest thing. Cool. Uh, what do you, what do you have any morning or evening rituals? Like, what does the first hour of your day look like? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose I I don't really have any rituals. I just get up and and get ready and go to work. Uh, you know, I I think that you do brush your teeth though every morning. I, I do brush my teeth if, as long as, <laughs> on the days I remember I brush. My teeth. Uh, no, I I think that uh, uh, I'm very fortunate in that uh, 
every, every day has a, a different set of challenges. And like, uh, you know, I kind of have, uh, the whole, the whole company is, is mm-hmm. part of, you know, uh, the stuff that I'm concerned with. So, so uh, let me, let me rephrase then. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push a little, I bet you do have patterns at least whether it's weekly or daily. And I'm just curious what of those patterns contribute to your sort of, uh, effectiveness, uh, or, you know, just output or lower your stress. Right. I mean, so you, uh, you know, music is, is part of your life, but are there, are there things you do say on a weekly basis, like one day a week or twice a week or whatever it might be that you think allow you to be a high functioning person without your, uh, sort of having to be put in a mental institution every once in a while to (laughs) de-stress? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, I guess I don't really, I've never really thought about it in those terms. I don't, uh, I'm such a I, negative person. Like I'm not. That, <laughs> no, it's like an illustration, maybe that I'm not like maybe not self-aware that like today I need to, you know, today I should do something to de-stress because my stress levels are are high and and certainly I do get you know uh, to you know I, there are certainly are days when the stress levels are high and I don't think I am self-aware enough to like have like okay today I should meditate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know I, I certainly read a lot. Uh, you know I. I uh, I think I, I try to like rid myself of of cognitive biases. Yeah, it's something that is could extremely you, nerdy thing to say. Could you, yeah, could you explain to people for those people who may not be familiar what that means? Yeah, sure. So, uh, or give an example. Either one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's a huge slew of uh, you know what a psychologist would call cognitive biases uh, that humans have, and um, what they are are things that make uh, you know a human. Uh, for whatever reason, like, you know, evolutionary reason, it, it makes them uh, averse to something that they shouldn't be averse to or it, like irrationally evaluate things. And so I'll give you an example. We can go back to gambling again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, let's use the same example. So like if we if it was ten dollars, you know, if if we rolled a die and each time we lost each time I was one through five, you lost a dollar. And if it was six, you won, you know, ten dollars, then you would play that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because over time you would you would be uh, positive, but uh, if each if each time assuming I have the bankroll, yeah, correct, yeah, assuming you have the bankroll, but let's say each time that uh, you roll that die instead of uh, I- instead of each roll uh, losing one dollar, one through five losing one dollar and six gaining ten dollars. Let's say that each of one through five you lost ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and then uh, and then with a six you won a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Uh, now would you play that game? So it, you know, it, it turns out that most people wouldn't play that game, even though the numbers are the same, mm-hmm. uh, because the fear of losing that much money is is uh, right, sort of insurmountable. Mm-hmm. And so people have these, uh, even though you should play that game, right? And a, a large business would play that game, mm-hmm. and a, even a rational actor would play that game. And so people have, uh, so that's a cognitive bias called loss aversion, right? Like losing a hundred dollars. Uh, you feel more bad for losing a hundred dollars than you feel good when you win a hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. The sunken cost fallacy, close, a close cousin, right? So you have people who yeah. will yeah. hold so on to an investment just yeah. because they have, right. it's gone down a certain amount. Uh, yeah. 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 My favorite story of, of, of sunk cost is, uh, is there's this, uh, tennis, this tennis club where, um, where you can rent, uh, where the outdoor courts are free, but the indoor courts you have to rent and you have to rent them ahead of time. You have to rent them like three weeks ahead of time and you just pay like 50 bucks for, mm-hmm. for the court for an hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and this is a real case. I forgot where it was, but in like March or April, uh, you know, you and and the outdoor courts are generally considered to be far more pleasurable because you're outside and it's warm and whatever, sunny. Um, and the indoor courts are, you know, these uncomfortable like white lights or whatever. Yeah. And so what happens is uh, in April it'll be a beautiful sunny day, uh, and and the people will be playing on the indoor courts and the outdoor courts are empty. And you say, well, why are you playing on the indoor court? Uh, you should go play outside. And they're like, well, we've already paid for the indoor court, right? Like we already, we paid for it last week. So now we're going to go to the indoor court and we're going to play. And you're like, but the outdoor court is far nicer and it's empty. Why don't you go play there? Mm-hmm. Right. And they go, well, no, cause we've paid for this one. <laughs> right. And so it's not, it's a sunk cost fallacy. Right. And it's, it's a, uh, this is a cognitive bias, right? You should do the thing that is most like, you know, it, you should play tennis on the most pleasurable court. Then mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you paid 50 bucks a week ago, for the less pleasurable court, if, if mm-hmm. the nicer court is open right now, you should play on the nicer court. So I should uh, mention for folks, uh, as as imperfect as Wikipedia might be, uh, there if you search list of cognitive biases, yeah. uh, don't don't search cognitive bias, search list of cognitive biases. There's a long list of these types of, of cognitive biases. And there are also a lot of books that explore this, uh, like Think Twice. Um, but the, there's sort of two approaches here, right? So, or two ways that you can, uh, minimize the damage of cognitive biases or extract value from them, right? The first is correcting those cognitive biases or at least becoming aware of them. The second is harnessing your inherent cognitive biases for something positive, right? For instance, um, there are, uh, cases where, uh, experiments have been done with, uh, say, gym memberships. And so having someone pay on a monthly basis for a gym membership is not nearly as effective as say having them overpay in advance and then giving them a refund of X amount for, for each Y number of, of times they go to the gym, uh, and sort of harnessing that type of prepayment and loss aversion and sunken cost, (laughs) uh, to, to incentivize somebody to do something positive they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, so it's, uh, Anyway, this this is also something that I like to nerd out about. So, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. what's what's a behavioral? What's a cognitive bias that you that you overcame, or something that you're currently working on? Anything in particular? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, all, I think all of these things were things that uh, uh, all these things are things that are very innate in everybody. Uh, and so I think you know, I, I at some point I did have sunk cost fallacy. At some point I did have uh, loss aversion and these kind of things. Um, let me see what what's a big one that I, I think another big one that everyone has is, is anchoring. And I certainly had that before, which is, uh, you know, in a, in a negotiation when, uh, when it's not clear, like what the price for something should be, uh, you should, you should just throw out a huge number. Like, like, okay. Like what you said, like if, you if, wanted me to you, be, if you, if you wanted me to be your, your mentor, right. Your yeah, math yeah. mentor. Right. And so what should an hourly rate be between you and me? Like I have, like, I have no idea. Like I, I don't, I've never taught like, you know, for, for, uh, you know, for a living. And, uh, so we'd have no idea. So you and I, so in that silent moment when, when you and I are like, what do you think the price should be? Uh, I'm going to blurt out a thousand dollars an hour. That's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not because I think I deserve that. It's because now I've anchored the conversation. Saying a huge number like that mm-hmm. uh, 
has has like blown away your like you know it's destroyed like your brain. I've I've just destroyed your brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard. It's not hard. And yeah. and so right and so now when we settle on a, on a on a final number, it's going to be much higher than it would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that that's just a cognitive bias. And I and now like like you said, you use these to your advantage. This is a situation in which I can use that to my advantage. So right, the final <laughs> especially the because final especially because I suck at math. On top of that, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so right whereas the final you know if i hadn't done that the final price might have been 25 dollars an hour uh and since i threw out that huge number it's like screwed up your brain now and uh and the final price is instead going to be 40 dollars an hour uh because <laughs> because i've done the anchoring thing and so uh and so that that's a great one uh for all you listeners out there about to go into a negotiation go try try this try this out uh it's it only works when there's a not not a uh, preset sort of uh, reference point ex- ex- yeah reference point right like if you're like how much you know how much i'm going to sell you my used uh toyota right and how much should it be and like you know a ballpark should be five grand i can't be like a hundred grand right it, it, just sounds, it just sounds stupid uh and like rude right to be yeah. so so it, it it only works really when when there's not a good expectation from either party that is, that is a good point, though, that, the, that negotiating is a fantastic way. That's probably the most systematic way that I've tried to address my own uh, self-defeating instincts would be another way to look at biases, right? Um, so The Secrets of Power Negotiating is a great book. The audio is even better. Getting Past No, I think, is a fantastic book. Better yeah. than Getting to Yes. Do you have any have – you, have you read any particular books on negotiating or – Actually, yeah. The, the first book that came to mind for me was Getting to Yes. So I haven't oh, Getting read, to Yes. Okay. No. But I love I love getting TS and I love, uh, you know, a, a lot of important things that people misunderstand. Uh, and I've just further that with the example I just said was that not not all negotiation is a zero sum game. Yeah, I think getting TS is a great is a great uh, you know uh, exposition of that. Yep. Yeah. No. It's it's. Uh, I think you'd enjoy getting past no. It was actually written after getting TS by one of the co-authors of getting getting TS. What okay. <laughs> uh. What, uh when when you think of the word successful or hear the word successful, who's the first person that comes to mind and why? Uh, I think I'd say Bill Gates. Uh, maybe that's a cliche, like sort of obvious answer, but uh, you know, depends he, on the depends on the reasons you give, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he's he's in tech, right? He is slash was a computer nerd. I'm a computer nerd. Uh, you know, he built a, a, an immense and you know one of the greatest software companies, uh, greatest technology companies ever. Uh, and something that I aspire to do, uh, and then not you know not only that, but then you know, then uh, you know, sort of the second chapter of his life, he's now gone and done all this great philanthropy, mm-hmm. uh, and it's something that you know I would I would love to follow in his footsteps on that when you know retirement time comes for me, mm-hmm. uh, is to go and, and give back and and uh, do these philanthropic efforts. Uh, if you were to follow Bill Gates' path. Uh, in a lot of those respects that you just mentioned, uh, what are the things about Bill Gates that, uh, if you could opt out of emulating, you would opt out of emulating? <laughs> uh, um, I, I don't know. I guess, uh, uh, it was a tough one. I guess he, he you, you could see like, you know, I guess he was very rough on his own employees mm-hmm. in, uh, within, within Microsoft. Uh, and I think that, uh, at a younger age, I was I was also very, uh, you know, very abrupt and sort of, you know, uh, 
you know, fit to like, uh, you know, susceptible to like bouts of, you know, anger and whatever. Um, and I think I've come a long way at, at, at this company to, uh, to be a lot nicer and right as, as <laughs> yeah, like I had a couple startups when, uh, in my twenties and I think I was very sort of mercurial at, in those, in those startups. But, uh, by the time I had started ZocDoc, uh, and sort of ironed all that out and it's much better to manage be a nice person when you're managing <laughs> i like mercurial that's a good adjective i was I, it makes me think of uh, a comedian named jim gaffigan i don't know if you've ever heard of him but yeah uh, he said uh, he said yeah you know i wish i were i think he i think he said at some point i'm paraphrasing he's like yeah you know if you're a, a a latin guy or woman and you're really angry people say wow it's just that latin temper and he's like but if i behave that way people just say wow that guy's a dick <laughs> uh but uh, mercurial i like that choice um it's just my indian passion coming through yeah indian passion <laughs> exactly I, I don't know what to yeah i i don't i don't i can't pull off scandinavian passion doesn't <laughs> doesn't 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 uh doesn't usually get accepted the uh, uh so on the flip side uh, what's the first face that comes to mind when you think punchable? Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I can't, I, I don't oh, know. God, come on. Uh, it doesn't have to be a real person. I'll give you, I'll give you an out. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the Jersey shore people, are, <laughs> uh, right. Or the, you know, the, the sort of people that are, uh, you know, famous for, for being famous. Yeah. Like not, not the people that are, you know, have actually contributed built stuff. Yeah. And built stuff. Yeah. Um, What's the uh, what are the most frequently played albums or artists on uh, your iPhone or computer? Uh, I, well, I, I love the Beatles a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that the more the more I listen to them, uh, the more complexity and and sort of stuff you discover as as you listen to their stuff over and over, mm-hmm. uh, which is great, right? A lot of a lot of pop songs are just really simple, and the first time you hear it, you've heard everything there is to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and the Beatles early stuff was like that. Like it was really simple and kind of about like chasing girls and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on they, they got really, really sophisticated and, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of lovely complexity to the music. And as you know, I'm a big, you know, I play music myself and I mm-hmm. understand quite a bit about music theory, which is, uh, you know, again, getting sort of mathematical, but, uh, really understanding why things sound good and why this chord sounds great here and this kind of stuff is all, uh, once again, math, and mm-hmm. not not complicated math, simple math, mm-hmm. but um, uh, but I love music theory and and uh, you know they, those guys were the kings of that. What uh, what would be two or three tracks that you would suggest people listen to to explore that? Uh, let me see. Uh, if you find, uh, let me let me think. Uh, I like Across the Universe a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you find like you, you can you can even see like which once you understand music theory, you can even see like which ones were written by whom. Mm-hmm. And so you can see uh, like uh, Paul McCartney always plays this. Uh, he, he always puts the four minor in, in his in his songs. And that's sure. a, it's sort of a music theory term. But um, he's a big fan of, of, of putting the four minor in, in, in his writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can when you hear you know a four minor come up you're like oh, i bet this one was written by mccartney and then you go look interesting right? and so uh i like across the universe uh which does have a four minor in it mm-hmm. uh i like uh uh i like something that's mm-hmm. that one's by i think it's by george harrison mm-hmm. uh and um let me see what are some other good ones 
Uh, certainly, like, the more psychedelic ones, like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Am the Walrus is great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's really no end to the... <laughs> to the list? Yeah. If, if you had a thousand people, uh, non-musicians, people who listen to music but have never played an instrument, and you wanted to get them hooked on learning more about music and potentially playing music, yeah. what would you have them read, watch, listen, buy, whether it's an instrument or otherwise. I mean, you, you are, you are in large part responsible for getting me interested in, uh, hand drumming, right? Um, yeah. but I'm not sure if that's the best gateway drug for people <laughs> with music, but what would you, what would you have them listen to or buy or play with or do if you had a thousand people and you had like a million dollars on the line? I'm not sure what the minimal threshold is for you to, <laughs> to make it. I'll do a business case and say I can train this many people. No. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that, uh, probably the guitar is the easiest because interesting. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed that. Why? Yeah. Because I think, well, for a couple of reasons, it's not, it's probably not the easiest to, uh, to play in terms of like, I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to hold a chord and obviously with a piano, you can just plunk the keys. But, um, but the second you get over the hump of learning three or four chords on guitar, uh, you're off to the races, right? Because you can learn, you can play so many pop songs uh, with just three or four chords on guitar, mm-hmm. and uh, so within a few weeks, you can already start be playing, uh, you know, you know, simple songs. And and then like Twist and Shout, for example, to go back to the Beatles, is is just three chords, three easy chords. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can play Twist and Shout in you know in a week or two, mm-hmm. really well. And then and then what you do is as you learn each new song, uh, pick a song with one extra chord in it. Right. So, so this next song has the same three chords as Twist and Shout, but one minor chord in it. Mm-hmm. And so now, right. So now you're learning that new song. You're leveraging, right. 75% you already know because it's the other three chords. Uh, and you're only picking up one new chord. And so then as, as you play, you know, as you pick new songs, just add one new chord each time. Uh, and your repertoire grows of songs, you know, and the repertoire of chords, you know, also grows. Uh, and it makes, right. And so it's really easy to get into that groove where it's fun to play because you're playing songs that everybody likes mm-hmm. um and it doesn't feel like you know work or or, or rehearsal or practice mm-hmm. it's just you know e- each one i just have to practice one new chord mm-hmm. uh and over time you know over the course of a year you'll learn a ton of a ton of songs now the uh as a couple of resources for mo- uh, for folks potentially one is uh just Googling Axis of Awesome, uh, who I think I don't yeah. know if you've seen this, does, does an amazing example of showing with three or four chords how you can play almost every pop song you've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, that, but, that chord progression is called one, five, six, four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, well, there you go. And, People could just Google that. <laughs> so chord progression <laughs> one, five, six, four. That's in the music theory notation. It'd be one, five, six, four. And then, and they play like a hundred different songs. Uh, and it's really hilarious. Yeah. yeah they're, they're amazing. Uh, are there any, for someone to, add one chord at a time without having to manually figure it out themselves and kind of reinvent the wheel. Is there any particular approach that you would suggest in doing that? Any, any way that you would Google for that to figure it out or a uh, YouTube approach or teachers? I mean, yeah, uh, there's a, there's a, I mean, there's a extreme wealth of, of online, of, uh, you know, online diagrams and, and YouTube videos about how to do these things. So, you know, what would exam- you search for to whittle it down? I think it's a paradox of choice challenge for a lot of people. Yeah, I I uh I don't know really. I guess it, it it's not like for the basic chords it's it's really like any anything will do. Uh you know, for example, a a D major chord is just, you know, it's three of your fingers, your index, middle and fourth finger 
uh, and then you have to put them on the bottom three strings of the of the guitar on the second fret, third fret, and second fret. And so you just have to, you know, it's just that, right? It's not more complicated than that. There's no like specific, uh, you know, uh, form that you have to do when you approach the guitar, or whatever. You just gotta slam your three fingers down on those three frets on those three strings, uh, and you'll play a D chord. And so at that level, uh, you know, you just need to know which fingers to put on which strings where, and it's not, you know, it's not an intense sort of, yeah, uh, you know, form exercise or anything. Cool. All right. Last question for now in this installment. Uh, if you could give your 20 year old self advice at this point in <laughs> retrospect, what would it be? And it doesn't have to be one thing. Oh man. Uh, or just 20 year olds in general could be you yourself, but it could be in general. Sure. I mean, I guess it would go back to these. Uh, so I'd say certainly um, when you're young, do, do the things, do the entrepreneurial things, because those are the things that will get you uh, right. You, you'll learn the most by far. And so I did, like I said, I did two startups in my 20s and they were, you know, the, the, neither one was a great hit. Uh, but um, but the amount I learned in you know one year of doing a startup was like doing, you know, was like seven years of working at a, at a, at a, you know, at a big company. And so, you know, when you're young and, you know, you just finished college or whatever, and you've got this, uh, you know, you've got this freedom and you're not encumbered with, uh, you know, uh, you know, with a spouse and kids that you have to, that you have to pay for, uh, and you can live on ramen noodles and all this stuff. That's the time to go and, and take this entrepreneurial risk because you, even if everything you do is a complete flop, uh, you know, if you spend five years doing it, you will learn, have learned like 35 years worth of, of, you know, career progression and, and life skills, uh, in those five years of, of, of just risking and failing and risking and failing. So even if it's a total flop, the, the person that you come out at the end of it, uh, as is, is, is far ahead of, if you just gone and worked at, at a big company. So on that, on that point, I lied about the last question. This is, this is one <laughs> more for, for people who are, graduating now or considering a a shift a career change uh, i'm not sure if this is age dependent but let's just say for the, for the sake of argument that they're they're single or they just have a very low burn rate what would how would you suggest people choose their first gig or their next gig i know it's a highly personal thing but let's let's just say people graduating uh college in the near future for the sake of simplicity yeah, I mean, it's just like figure out a market need, like anything that you have in your day to day world, uh, you know, that that sucks. Like what is, you know, is it hard to find parking or can you, you know, is a movie theater dirty or whatever? And and just try to solve that problem. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's that's a great way to get started. And, it, you know, you, you'll learn a lot. You, you'll do something, uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll create a website where like it shows you like which movie theaters are dirty and you'll realize, wow, I can't like, there's no revenue from this website. Like I can't, I can't make any money telling people what movie theaters are dirty, but then that's a learning by itself. Right. And, 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 you know, and you come away from that and you're like, okay, I need to think about, you know, things with actual revenue opportunities and you'll do that iterative process and you'll, you know, and you'll flop a bunch, but that's fine. Like that's the learning process. And you know, it's the school of hard knocks. Uh, and you're going to learn a ton just doing that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, Nick, I think uh, yeah. this is this is a great place to stop for now. I'm sure we'll have uh, a round two in person with uh, some yeah. food and some wine. But no, it's great. Uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Where can people learn more about uh, you or Zocdoc? 
where would you like people to check uh, uh check what yeah. you're up to out certainly uh you know i i'm on the about us page of zocdoc so uh but you know more importantly if you know if if you need a doctor it really is the best place to find a doctor so zocdoc zocdoc.com uh, for myself, I don't, I mean, I, mean, I don't have any, like, <laughs> I don't have any about, you know, like, uh, I don't have a shrine to me on the web anywhere. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I've got a LinkedIn page. You can find me on the LinkedIn page, I suppose. Um, but, uh, but you know, ZocDoc is my, is my pride and joy. So go there. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to cut my teeth on some ping pong and awesome. I, I, we, we, we may, may have to have a showdown next time we, uh, Oh yeah, get together, balls of fury style. Uh, Awesome, man. Well, thanks very much, and I will talk to you soon. Awesome, thanks a lot. All right, buddy. Bye bye. Bye.